The Danish director Thomas Vinterberg's latest film is a sweet, strangely modest, tragic comedy about the pleasures of mostly banal excess. That's from Devika Grish of the New York Times. Excellent blurb, talking about our feature review, Another Round. Not a surprise, it's up for Best International Feature, also known as Best Foreign Film, and it's the favorite to win the Oscar a month from now. But it was one of the biggest shockers of the Oscar nominations that Thomas Vinterberg is up for Best Director. So we're reviewing that in addition to The White Tiger, which is nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. That's currently on Netflix. The great Priyanka Chopra stars in that. Raya and the Last Dragon, which I took my kids to see. And Joe is without child, but he went to see it in a New York City theater. So that's the first film my man Engelbrecht has seen back in a theater, which is great news. And lastly, My Octopus Teacher, which... uh, Avid fans of Cinephile will remember Ben Lyons raved about months ago. It's a nominated for Best uh, Documentary Feature, currently available on Netflix. I knocked that out as well. So four films coming up. Joe has seen all four of these. And the good news is this, because all I care about now is the Oscar prep, so to speak, preparing for all the Oscar nominees. And the good news is this. Now that I knocked out another round and um, The White Tiger, I've seen every nominee for Best Picture, Director, Actor, Actress, Supporting Actor, Supporting Actress, Original Screenplay, and Adapted Screenplay. The White Tiger was the only one I was missing for Adapted Screenplay, and as I mentioned, Vinderberg up for Best Director. So I've got the top eight categories done. Now I'm going to try to attack the Best Documentary and Best Foreign Films. Another round, obviously, as I mentioned, the favorite to win. Documentary, so far I've seen Time, and now My Octopus Teacher as well. So that's going to be the goal here in the weeks ahead of Cinephile. We'll also talk about big news involving the WGA, the Writers Guild Award winners, how that's important in terms of predicting the Oscars. Uh, Golden Globes trying to improve as far as their diversity is concerned. News involving a film about Steven Spielberg. And you're going to love this Mount Rushmore. In honor of my octopus teacher, how about a Mount Rushmore of movies with the animals in the title? Pretty funny. All right, let's kick it off first here, because like I said, the great news is I've seen all these, and so has Joe. So this will be a fun little back and forth. We'll kick it off with another round. Thomas Vinterberg is a director well-known to fans of international cinema. Uh, the Celebration's an excellent movie. I recommend it. The Hunt was really powerful, starring Mads Mikkelsen. That came out in 2002. He's part of that Dogma 95 group, most famously Lars von Trier, who's a real enfant terrible. Uh, they had this screed of rules as far as how they're going to make their movies. A lot of handheld camera, a lot of natural lighting, uh, and they had a lot of acclaim, especially around the Cannes Film Festival in the late 90s. So Vinterberg's a name that you know, and now he's made a movie which is probably his most mainstream effort. Not that that's a bad thing. Sometimes you say that, people think, oh, you're you're saying he's selling out, but no, I'm just saying it's, you know, it's not uh, like what Lars von Trier was doing with Breaking the Waves. That's all. Another Round is a straightforward movie, but I think it's one that's very pleasurable and entertaining to all. And the good news is, especially when you try to recommend foreign films to friends, it's very accessible. Here's the story. Four friends, all high school teachers, test a theory that they'll improve their lives by maintaining a constant level of alcohol in their blood. Yes, you heard that right. A little bit of booze goes a long way. One of the buddies kind of says, listen, I read this story. A theory, I believe it was Freudian. Hey, if you have like a 0.05 alcohol level, just takes a little bit away of the edge, right? Gets a little bit of the anxiety gone. You're feeling pretty good. And uh, you're heightened. Your senses are awakened, so to speak. And Mickelson, as you can tell very early on in the movie, he's got that hangdog expression about him. Appears to be a loveless marriage. Don't think the kids are all that into him. He's jumping at the bit to try anything different. And sure enough, a little booze goes a long way. He's looser in the classroom. He's very entertaining. In fact, there's a great speech he gives his class about the differences between Churchill and Hitler and FDR. And you can tell there's a little bounce in his step now. Things are a little better with his wife as well. And like, all right. All the other guys as well are enjoying their moments. As amusing as it is, seeing them sneaking away for a shot, 
maybe a glass of wine first thing in the morning because they got to get their buzz on. Uh, but unfortunately, as we all know, anybody who uh, takes alcohol to extremes, if you drink every day, not a good thing, right? A little bit of moderation, totally get it. But if you're drinking every day and you're drinking to excess ever, which as we all know, I mean, unless you have a couple of drinks, hard not to have 10 drinks, I'm sure. So uh, a couple of these guys fall prey to that. Without giving away anything, though, I thought it was a really pleasurable, entertaining movie. I love the ending. All I knew is someone said to me, get ready for Mickelson's dance. Uh, and this is not Phil Mickelson. I'm talking about Mads Mickelson's dance. And this is uh, about as enjoyable as it gets. I mean, I think of great dance sequences. I mean, Silver Lines Playbook, they've got a great dance sequence. We got a six! But I, I love the way another round ends. And uh, Vinterberg co-wrote the screenplay. Mickelson is excellent in the role. Another round, I'm giving it uh, three Maple Leafs. I really enjoyed this movie. Joe? And, and I know it was a surprise that he was nominated for Best Director, but having seen this movie, I couldn't agree more. I know it's early in the year, but to me, this is top 10 film for 2021 so far. Really liked it that much. Um, and Mads Mikkelsen, too. It's just nice to see him in a normal role. You know, He's always playing the villain. He's kind of ca- typecast as that character in so many of his movies, but it's just nice to see him play a normal guy. But you're right, the ending... The dance sequence, I thought it worked. I thought what Adam Driver tried to do in Marriage Story when he sang in that bar, Mickelson did here, only he did it effectively. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's well said. I mean, that, as you know, is uh, eye-roll inducing for me whenever I even think about that scene. But you're right. Sometimes you're trying to stretch to something a little different. That There it felt forced here. I agree with you. It was actually perfect. Peter Travers of ABC News, a peak for Mads Mikkelsen stars in this hilarious and heartbreaking spellbinder as a Copenhagen high school teacher who thinks day drinking might sharpen his faculties. The Oscar for Best International Feature belongs right here. Uh, Joe Morgenstern, Wall Street Journal, drinking, binge drinking. They can't begin to convey the wild beauty and emotional depth of this film. And Stephanie's a character of Time Magazine. Even here as a character with no discernible personality, Mickelson casts a sympathetic, believable shadow. His Martin is a nowhere man of great distinction, stuck in a nowheresville of a movie. Ouch. Um, Joe, I don't know. I, I, you don't strike me as a particularly big drinker. I'm sure you get after it with your friends. Would you ever do this theory? You and your friends, hey, you know what? Let's try to maintain a 0.05% alcohol level at all times. You know, at 31, I don't know. Maybe at 21, I would. But at 41, who knows? We'll see. As of right now, no. But I think about 10 years sandwiched between either way of trying this, you know? All right. If we can get enough support here from Cinephile, as always, you can tweet us. You can go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. If you can, if we can convince Joe to maybe, maybe you know, we don't want this interview with his work here at Cadence 13, but perhaps uh, even three <laughs> or four days of uh, day drinking just to see if Joe can, uh, not that he needs to get loosened up, but just to test this theory, this Freudian theory. We'll see if we can make that happen. I'm willing. I'm doing it. We'll take one for the team. <laughs> I need to be willing to do it. By the way, I just want to mention Doc Lou, Iowa. Uh, Joe said he gets his hearing back, was going to see it this week. Be careful in the future. I'm not going to say what that's specific to, but uh, no problem, Doc. Also, worst Oscars, Art Carney beating Jack Allen Dustin. It's a great reference. You're right. 1974 Oscars is what he's referring to. Uh, Pacino was up for The Godfather Part Two. Nicholson was up for Chinatown. And Dustin Hoffman was up for, what was it in 74? Oh, man, maybe it was Lenny. But Art Carney won for a movie called Harry and Tonto. And uh, I've never seen it because even I was just revulsed by the thought that this guy actually beat Al. And then I looked at Nicholson in Chinatown. Hoffman, like I said, I believe it's Lenny in 74. But, God, Art Carney, Harry and Tonto, that's absolutely brutal. Uh, Matt, Matt, by the way, said, happy birthday, Joe. Love the movies reviewed this week. The Mauritanian was phenomenal. Jodie Foster did some great work. Contact is my favorite of her work, but mostly because of the space stuff. I still regularly quote it. Okay to go. 
Uh, DBlack519, I've said it before, I can't care how much I enjoy listening to you and Joe. I feel like a conversation with you guys about movies should be placed on my bucket list. Oh, thank you so much. As far as Jodie Foster movies go, how about the film The Brave One? It was a different role for her, but she managed to pull it off. I have not seen that movie. Joe, your thoughts on The Brave One? You know, I've never seen The Brave One. I, I'm not even sure what it's about. Would you recommend it? No, I've never seen it. So I uh, will have to maybe add The Brave One to the list. But thank you to DBlack519 uh, and the rest of the guys for the reviews. All right. We'll get to Joe's day drinking later on. Now it's time for The White Tiger, which was uh, heavily promoted by my man Scott Rogowski. He's like, dude, you got to check this out. Your family hails from the... Uh, South Asian region of this world. And I said, you know, okay, Pakistan, India, you know, I've, I'm used to these simmering tensions. Let me guess, Hindus, Muslims, fighting music. No, it's all about the caste system. I'm like, all right, cool. So here's the story. Balram Halwai, played by Adarsh Gurav, narrates his epic and darkly humorous rise from poor villager to successful entrepreneur in modern India. Cunning and ambitious, our young hero jockeys his way into becoming a driver for Ashok, that's Rajkumar Rao, and Pinky. Priyanka Chopra Jones. I, I don't like to add the Jones, Jonas Park. It's just, it's offensive to me that she's actually married to one of the Jonas Brothers. She's way too attractive. So we're just going to call her Priyanka Chopra. I just returned from America. Society has trained Balram to be one thing, a servant. So he makes himself indispensable to his rich masters. But after a night of betrayal, he realizes the corrupt lengths that will go to trap and save themselves. On the verge of losing everything, Balram rebels against a rigged and unequal system to rise up and become a new kind of master. Based on the New York Times bestseller and 2008 Man Booker Prize winning novel. So I'm actually really curious to win the novel now. And congrats to Ramin Barani, who I got to be honest, I, I, don't, I couldn't name any of his movies off the top of my head, but I know the name right away. I go, yeah, Iranian filmmaker. I've heard of him. He directed this and wrote it. So he's Oscar nominated for Best Adaption. Uh, and Aravind Ariga, also who wrote the book, he's also nominated for the adaptation. So it's always tricky. I wish I could read the book and then say, okay, this is why this is such a skillful adaptation. But as a film on its own merit, I thought it was enjoyable because kind of what Scott was saying, if you don't know anything about India and the caste system, this is a very um, eye-opening tale, and it's one that's very sad and very frustrating. Basically, if you belong to the higher caste, you are treated like wealthy landowners, and you have a prosperous lifestyle. And if you're born into a poor caste, which again, is nothing to do with you, that's just luck of the draw, then all of a sudden you're a servant. You're a rickshaw driver. You uh, literally tend to your master's needs. So it, it sounds, uh, I, I can imagine, obviously for Western audiences here, very outdated, but that's how a lot of life is in India. If you have the good cast, you have the good life. If you have the bad cast, the bad hand, so to speak, things don't work out for you. So I thought the central performance by Adarsh Gaurav was very sympathetic. And uh, you can imagine how hard it is to be just constantly living a life of indentured servitude. I mean, you're literally at your master's whim. And yes, I'm sure there are nice masters, but there's a lot who are jerks. And Rajkumar Rao is effective as a shok because he shows that at times he can be kind towards Balram and, you know, treat him as an equal. Let's go out drinking, have a few stories, whatever. But other times he's just cruel, throws stuff at him, verbally abusive, at times physically abusive. You know, you're my servant, you're nothing. Uh, Priyanka Chopra is uh, her husband, and sorry, her wife, his wife, and she has a little bit more compassion. But again, this is the caste system. How do you overchange this? So the story I thought was a little bit predictable. Like you obviously know where the story is going, and part of it is told in flashbacks. So it's not like they're trying to surprise you, but you're like, okay, when is, uh, when is the hunter going to become the hunted, so to speak here? When is the, the servant going to turn the tables on the master? But I thought it was well executed. And again, I, I appreciate any stories that depict a different way of lifestyle from our own, just because I think it can be eye-opening and I thought it was well-directed by Barani, well-shot, good pacing. I'm going to give it three maple leaves. I enjoyed The White Tiger, and I recommend it for anybody who doesn't know much about the uh, South Asian subcontinent Indian lifestyle. And uh, I thought it was very, very interesting. Joe? 
Uh, I liked it a lot, Adnan. It, I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, I thought the acting was great by the by the protagonist, and um, it was, to your point earlier, a real eye-opener. As an American who kind of understands the caste system, this was a much more in-depth, informative, educational look for me personally on how it works. It reminded me a lot of Parasite, in a way. Mm. Kind of the story of servitude, realizing that you weren't born or you don't really like the life that you're leading right now. And I, I kind of picked up on a lot of those notes. But overall, I thought it was very good. I just thought that they could have made it just a little bit shorter. Um, that it was a little bit bloated. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, it's about two hours. You start to feel the two hours by the end of it. But that's a great call by you comparing it to Parasite because you're right. That was a great expose of the class system and how there's such a divide in countries like that, whether it's South Korea or India. You know, the divide between the rich and the, and the poor, it's just so sad. And it's so stark. I mean, you, you feel it in America naturally, but it's there is a middle class in the United States. There is a middle class in Canada, in England, you know, in most of these uh, first world countries. But over there, it's literally rich or poor, and it's get rich or die trying. Ty Burr, the Boston Globe, Ballroom's tale is rich and ruthless enough for both approaches and for any country built on a premise of one class eating another. Karthik Purushathaman of the New Republic, though a climactic nod to Nepal's merciless depiction of underdeveloped India, no matter how many fortunate individuals might escape it, Barani's The White Tiger subverts the standard issue poverty porno. How about that alliteration? And Namrata Joshi of National Herald India, directed by Iranian-American filmmaker Amin Barani, the film is a breeze despite some tired cliches. It ends up as an insider's take on corruption and caste and class divides in India. Now we get to Raya and the Last Dragon, which both Joe and I saw in theaters. This time it was $36 for the tickets, uh, $43 for the concessions. AMC, you're welcome. Alpha Hill 1, Mitch Green, enjoy me complaining about how much I'm paying for the tickets and the concessions. That's one large tub of popcorn, $9.29. Three small slushies, $6.49 apiece. And a couple of uh, orders of chicken tenders, because it was right after school. Me and Yusuf are pretty hungry. Eight forty nine apiece. So there's your AMC update on how much I'm spending at concessions. But thank God, it was a Friday matinee. So before 4 o'clock, you know, it was, uh, I think, believe $12 for myself and eight fifty for the kids. Joe, I do not believe, went with any children, but he wanted to go enjoy some great animation. It's got rave reviews. I think it's like 94% Rotten Tomatoes. Might be the best reviewed film so far early of 2021. Here's the story. Be long ago in the fantasy world of Kumandra, humans and dragons lived together in harmony. But when sinister monsters known as the Droon threatened the land, the dragons sacrificed themselves to save humanity. Now, 500 years later, those same monsters have returned and it's up to a lone warrior, Raya, to track down the last dragon in order to finally stop the Droon for good. However, along her journey, she'll learn that it'll take more than dragon magic to save the world. It's going to take trust as well. Co-directed by Don Hall and Carlos Lopez Estrada, it's welcome for a couple of reasons. We're all well aware of how sad things are in America and these vicious assaults in the Asian-American community. And this is a film in which you get to appreciate Asian life. So first and foremost, it's wonderful to see characters and diversity from that world. And I enjoyed all of the you know, performances and voice work. Kelly Marie Tran, Aquafina, we all know her from The Farewell. Uh, Gemma Chan as well. So it was nice to just see, again, a diverse cast showing a different world of the Far East. But I think it also had that element of mysticism and action and strong character development. Like, it's nice to see a feminine heroine telling a different story. But at the same time, it's got the requisite thrills and chills. It's going to excite both parents and adults alike. Excuse me, parents and kids alike. 
And that's why I can totally see why uh, critics are swooning over this. I mean, you, you figure, okay, how many more dragon stories can I take? I've already seen, uh, you know, enough of these dragons everywhere. I don't care if it's Game of Thrones or how to train your dragon. I mean, seriously, enough of the dragons. But no, Raya and the last dragon come to show us that, you know what? Okay, if this is going to be the last dragon tale, this is one that we can take. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Again, three minute beliefs, a consistent theme. Alison Wilmore of Vulture. Raya and the Last Dragon is a reminder of the things that Disney has always been capable of doing well at its heights. A marvel of character design, world building, and canny choices. And David Fear of Rolling Stone. Trans vulnerable yet formidable fighter compliments Aquafina's high on nitrous riffing. What might seem a ho-hum or borderline annoying on its own turns into a nice push-pull double act. Joe, your thoughts on Raya? And then I uh, loved it. It was great. It, it, you know, the choices that they made, this world that Disney was able to build, they're just in the pocket for this movie. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I it was also because I saw it in theaters, a strict reminder of why people go to see movies in theaters. So it was Saturday night. I'm on a date. We go there, and the theater's just completely filled with kids. And throughout the movie, they're just talking throughout the entire movie, making the funniest commentary in the world. The antagonist did something bad, and one kid just goes, Oh, not again! And so, like, they're getting more restless throughout the movie. Oh, and I should mention, too, at one point in the movie, there was this tiny kid, because a lot of, you know, these kids were talking throughout the entire film, so he just kind of got fed up, maybe five years old, and he just starts going, Shh, shh, really loudly, and I'm thinking everyone be quiet because there is still a pandemic and this dude is just shooting all over everyone, you know? Uh, but overall, I really, really enjoyed it, Adnan. I would totally recommend it. I would even advise people to spend the $30 on Disney Plus to see it. That's how much I liked it. Yeah, I was going to say, this is right up your alley. Animation, which is smart and sophisticated and great storytelling. So I, I knew, like, it's, I don't want to call it Miyazaki's Spirited Away, but I know it's it's definitely in your uh, genre and what you enjoy. So I'm so glad that you saw it. What was it like just being in a New York City theater again? How busy was it? Uh, what was the vibe like? You know, I, I went to go see it at my local theater. It's called Williamsburg Cinema in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And this was the first weekend that this particular branch was open again. And so they did a good job about keeping people socially distant. At no point did I think I was close to really anyone or, or did I feel unsafe. But it was I, I was expecting it to not be as busy as it was. It was definitely too capacity for what they were allowing in that theater. But it's nice to see people actually going out to, you know, see movies again, kind of get back to normal life in that sense. So it was nice. I just think I'd probably go see a matinee the next time I go. Yeah, that's a well said. I'm, I'm a big matinee guy because I just think, like you said, less crowds. You can just enjoy, space out. But that's good. Everyone's adhering to, to uh, guidelines. And I just was reading my latest Hollywood Reporter. According to the stats, now 45% of theaters in America are now open. So we're getting there. Once we get to 50%, hopefully, uh, you know, get some summer blockbusters going more and more places will be open. Obviously, California is the big one. I don't know when the California theater is going to open up. So much of the movie industry, so much of the population is there. So uh, that remains to be seen. In the meantime, though, we can keep watching movies that are streaming. And this is My Octopus Teacher, recommended from Ben Lyons. And now, of course, I only saw it because it was nominated for an Academy Award, Best Documentary. This has got to be one of the weirdest movies I've seen in a long time, but also one of the most unique. And I texted with Ben afterwards. And he goes, think how many movies you and I have seen. Right? Think how many tired cliches and derivative stories we've sat through. And yet you see a movie like this and you go, I've never seen that before. This is a documentary about a deep sea diver who establishes a warm and beautiful and special relationship with an octopus. You heard that right. 
Nick Shager of the Daily Beast, a quietly profound and crazy portrait of the bonds we share with everything in our environment, even if its cinematic depiction is sometimes far from perfect. And Guy Lodge, my octopus teacher never loses our goodwill. If we end up wishing anything, it wish there was a little more, less man and a little more beast. And Sherry Linden, my octopus teacher is a dazzling technical achievement, especially when you consider that Helmers, Ehrlich and Reed and editor Dan Schwalm were faced with 3,000 hours of footage shot over a period of eight years that began long before Foster encountered the title Animal. Think about this. And this is so uh, economical in terms of its filmmaking. I think it's 85 minutes. They had to call through 3,000 hours of footage over a period of eight years. That's not even involving the octopus. Like, wait till you get to the octopus. Here's the other stuff. I mean, I I don't even know how documentarians do it. Seriously. So much about filmmaking dazzles me and wows me, and I'm impressed and in awe of anybody who works in the motion picture industry. But I think of everyone, documentarians take the cake because they're not making any money. Nobody's turning a profit. They're probably still waiters and waitresses on the side, and yet they do these movies because they just they care about it. They're passionate about it. And Craig Foster, the main guy, he's the, he's the host and founder of Sea Change Project and clearly really cares about animals and habitat and has dedicated his life to it. And the director, James Reed, clearly is passionate about it as well. But it's... The cinematography is just gorgeous. I mean, you, you think about the aquamarine blues and uh, seeing habitat up close like that. It's amazing. And the actual octopus, I mean, showstopper. I, I think he's got like 200 tentacles. Like, it's crazy. Like, when you see an octopus up close, like, oh, my God. What, it's just a bizarre creature. All those legs and tentacles and just it can kind of morph into different uh, shapes and sizes. And the fact that this guy establishes a relationship, I'm not kidding, a bond with an octopus. And like he explains it. He's like, you know, normally the octopus is terrifying. You know, he's hiding in his little you know, crawl space. But the fact once I developed his trust, which is like, how the hell do you develop a trust with an octopus? But the octopus is like literally the equivalent of cuddling. Like how I do with my kids, the octopus is like, you know, sucking on this guy's hand. It's like, you know, a very comfortable, sweet resting position. I mean, at one point the guy starts to cry. Like he gets emotional. And I'm like, okay, this is both hilarious and incredible. Like, it, it's amazing. It's such a relationship with, with an octopus. Even as I'm kind of laughing at the screen, like, bro, seriously, an octopus? But it was it was wondrous. I'm giving it three and a half maple leaves because if there's nothing else you want in movies today, at least I, I'm giving always high marks to originality. If you're going to show me something I've never seen before, then I'm pretty impressed. And you did so on a very, as I said, economical, efficient runtime. My octopus teacher on Netflix, I highly recommend it. Joe? And then... To all the single people out there, find yourself someone that looks at you the way that Craig Foster looks at this octopus. He loves this octopus. After this documentary, Adnan, I think the octopus might be my favorite sea creature. I was an Australian ghost shark guy before that, and an Australian ghost shark stand, you could say. But now the octopus, just the way that he's able to craft personality the way they hunt, the way they, they evade predators. What you said is super original, and the cinematography, as you pointed out, is just superb. I completely agree with you. Three and a half maple leaves. I cannot recommend this documentary enough. Yeah, it's just, like you said, in today's world, Joe, if you actually get something that's new and different, you just praise it for that much more reason. I just, I just don't even know how they put this together and the, the camera work. Because think about it. It's not just him in the sea. You've got you know the camera people and stuff. So like the fact that they all had to be literally... Um, so careful. I mean, I don't want to give anything away, but there's one sequence involving a shark, and you're like, oh my God, we have a shark in the tank. What are we going to do here? As he said, you're trying to bond with the octopus, but once in a while you have to go up and get some air, and uh, it's just, it really is a special movie. If you love animals, you love the sea, uh, I'm a marine biologist, you're going to love this movie. Coming up after the break, entertainment news, including the winners from the 2021 Writers Guild Awards and the Mount Rushmore of Movies with Animals. 
Well, after months of contenders jockeying for industry attention, we at least now know who the best scribes are. That's right, the writers. And give it up for Borat. I promise I'm going to shut up about Borat one of these days, but you're all going to see it first. Sasha Baron Cohen's digital blockbuster won. That's right. Best adapted screenplay goes to Borat. And Emerald Fennel's promising young woman, which when I saw it, my first thought was, I hope the script gets recognized and it's being recognized. It wins best original screenplay. It's now the favorite to win an Academy Award because of its very topical, buzzy storyline, perfect for the Me Too era. Now, WGA's is an Oscar predictor. This is interesting. The WGA Awards have correctly predicted seven best adapted screenplay Oscar winners across the last 10 ceremonies. That number drops to five for best original screenplay winners shared by the Academy and the WGA over the same period, including last year's dual winner for Parasite. So by that arithmetic, 70% chance that Borat's going to win an Oscar for screenplay and a 50% chance that Promising Young Woman, at least according to the odds, will win. But as I said, Promising Young Woman is already getting more buzz, so those numbers are definitely higher than 50%. Now, despite some strong showings, several key Oscar players were ineligible to the WGA. So this is interesting. You know, they state that screenplays made outside the Writers Guild cannot contend for the group's top prizes. So, this year, exclusions include Oscar-nominated titles like Minari, Nomadland, and David Fincher's Mank, which also missed out on Oscar nom for Best Screenplay. So keep that in mind. If you say, okay, well, now Promising a Woman and Borat's going to win, well, Minari and Nomadland were not included, and both those films obviously have huge appeal with the Academy voters. The nominees, in case you're curious, for original screenplay for the WGAs, Promising a Woman was the winner. The other nominees were The Trial of Chicago 7, Judas and the Black Messiah, Palm Springs, and Love to See Sound of Metal in the mix. Adapted screenplay, the winner was Borat, subsequent movie film. I couldn't even tell you all the people who have written on this thing. Okay, I'll try. What the hell? Screenplay by Sasha Baron Cohen and Anthony Hines and Dan Swimer and Peter Bainham and Erica Rivenoha and Dan Mazur and Jenna Friedman and Lee Kern. Story by Sasha Baron Cohen and Anthony Hines and Dan Swimer and Nina Pedrad, based on characters created by Sasha Baron Cohen. Amazing. I mean, if they win, that's going to be incredible seeing 12 people up on stage. The other nominees were The White Tiger, One Night Miami by Kemp Powers, adapting his own screenplay, News of the World, which was blatantly ignored by the Oscars, at least he got a WGA nomination, at least for major categories. Paul Greengrass's film did not do well. And Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, screenplay by Ruben Santiago Hudson, with a play written by August Wilson. Documentary screenplay, I have uh, the screener actually in my home. I haven't seen it yet. The Dissident which is written by Mark Monroe and Brian Fogel. That's a nice win for them. They also beat All In, the fight for democracy. Television was paying for Better Call Saul. Of course, it does not win. It's the crown. Everything's the crown. God, Peter Morgan, Jonathan Wilson, Netflix. Comedy series, I was pushing hard for Kirby Enthusiasm instead. No, Ted Lasso. People just love Ted Lasso. Written by Jane Becker, Leanne Bowen, Brett Goldstein, Brendan Hunt, Joe Kelly, blah, 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 blah. New series, the winner was, no surprise, Ted Lasso. Thought it might be the flight attendant. Give it up for Kelly Cuoco. Not happening. An original long form, Mrs. America, that Cape Blanchett uh, miniseries, which would be very good. Adapted long form, take a guess. That's right. The Queen's Gambit wins again. I was pushing for uh, Bad Education, which I really enjoyed on HBO, or The Good Lord Bird, just because Ethan Hawke co-wrote it, but instead it is The Queen's Gambit that comes up big. And comedy slash variety talk series, Desus and Merrill. Your reaction to any of this, Joe? Those winners from the Writers Guild of America. Uh, I'm very happy to see... This is Marrow as the Variety Talk series, and I just watched The Queen's Gambit maybe two weeks ago. I binged it in a day, Adnan. I loved it. I think that there is merit to that. Though now I'm curious to see Bad Education. You would recommend it? 
Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Hugh Jackman is hilarious. He's so often uh, playing a sympathetic character, a charming lead performance, an old school song and dance man, but I thought he was excellent playing a cad for a change, a villain, a superintendent who is embezzling funds. Allison Janney is always a ton of fun. Uh, very Long Island, very much set in its era, but I thought it was funny and uh, really enjoyable. I think you'd enjoy it. All right, I'll ch- definitely check it out. Yeah, bad education on the list. Uh, Golden Globe news. Everyone knows, uh, forget about Oscars so white, it's Golden Globe so white. So they said, okay, fine, we're going to mix it up. We promise. A response to a Monday letter from more than 100 PR firms demanding the Hollywood Foreign Press provide explicit plans for transformational change. Here's what they said. Currently comprised of 87 LA-based journalists for outlets abroad, the HFPA said, as a demonstration of our commitment, the board has unanimously approved a plan to increase membership to a minimum of 100 members this year with a requirement that at least 13% of the membership be black journalists. Further avowed, we are committed to making necessary changes within our organization and in our industry as a whole. We also acknowledge that we should have done more and sooner. And it added, while we recognize this is a long-term process, we will continue to be transparent, provide updates, and have confidence in our ability to change and restore trust in our organization and the Golden Globe. So that's definitely good news there on that front. Our last bit of news here as well is involving Seth Rogen. And you say to yourself, okay, Seth Rogen, what do you got? Another comedy down the pipeline? No, no, actually, how about this involving some news with Steven Spielberg? I mean, this is just, listen, anything involving Spielberg, I, I have discussed this before, the Spielberg uh, documentary, I thought was very entertaining on HBO. They went through his entire work. And as Dustin Hoffman said, you know, rather than Steven Spielberg, he's like a guy who works for Steven Spielberg. That's how great he is. Well, Seth Rogen has joined Spielberg's upcoming film based on his childhood in Arizona. Rogen will take on the role of Spielberg's favorite uncle, in the untitled film, and Michelle Williams is in talks to play a major part as well. The search is underway to find young actors of multiple ages to round out the cast, with one of them playing the role inspired by a young Spielberg, although the character's name will not be Steven. Spielberg co-wrote the script with Tony Kushner. Tony Kushner, big-time name, right? Angels in America. They also worked together at West Side Story, which isn't out yet. Munich and Lincoln. Plot details being kept under wraps of the film will focus on a young protagonist growing up in Phoenix. 1950s, 1960s examine the character's relationship with his parents through different time periods. Production scheduled to start this summer. A release date planned for 2022 being produced by Spielberg. And as I mentioned, West Side Story set to release on December 10th. That's a full one year delay because of the pandemic. So anything involving Spielberg, and it's amazing. So many of his films are about his childhood. He has talked so much about the fact that that divorce impacted his whole life. You need to look at E.T., Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I mean, so many of his movies deal with divorce and a young kid, young protagonist trying to overcome that stuff. And now he's making a movie about it. And Seth Rogen being cast. I mean, he's playing Spielberg's favorite uncle. How good is this, Joe? I'm all in on this. Tony Kushner, Seth Rogen, Michelle Williams, Steven Spielberg. Just just throw more names on there. I'm already in, but you can just keep piling it on. I'm interested to see who else is cast. Yeah, exactly. Uh, once again, West Side Story is coming out December 10th. That will be Steven Spielberg's next film. Now it's time for a little Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore. 
All right, the Mount Rushmore of animals in the title, inspired by my octopus teacher, Raging Bull, one of the greatest films of all time, one of my three favorite movies of all time. That's a no-brainer. So is Dog Day Afternoon, Sidney Lumet's incredible film starring Al Pacino as a bank robber trying to raise money because he's bisexual and he has a sex change operation for his lover. Yep, true story. And I won actually an Academy Award for a great screenplay by Frank Pearson. The late John Cazale is wonderful in that movie. If you've never seen it, you like a good bank robbery movie? I know recently on the rewatchables, they talked about Inside Man, which is a really good Spike Lee film. Uh, very entertaining with Denzel and Clive Owen, Jodie Foster. Well, the best bank robbery movie I'm not going to include Heat, although there is, of course, an incredible bank heist in it, but I think of it as a tr crime drama. Just pure bank heist movie. Dog Day Afternoon is my absolute favorite because that is basically the entire film. Whereas Heat obviously has supporting characters and other elements. And then the centerpiece is the bank robbery, uh, obviously, which is just immaculate. So Raging Bull and Dog Day Afternoon. You could go with a lot of dogs here, okay? There's must-love dogs. There's straw dogs. I mean, there's reservoir dogs. So the definitely dogs are being well, uh, well established here. I'm also going to go for my third choice, the Maltese Falcon. My buddy Anish Shroff told me the other day, of course, the amazing line, the stuff that dreams are made of. Humphrey Bogart, unforgettable. John Huston, the Maltese Falcon. And with one more, again, I kind of want to go, man, I kind of want to go with another dog, but no more dogs. Silence of the Lambs is obviously a good option. I'm going to go with the Wolf of Wall Street. Scorsese's most commercially successful film, $400 million worldwide, absolutely hysterical from start to finish. The scene of Leo and Jonah on Quaaludes alone is sufficient to make you laugh and appreciate its brilliance. So those are my four. Mount Rushmore of animals in the title. We're going with Wolf of Wall Street. We're going with the Maltese Falcon, Raging Bull, and Dog Day Afternoon. Joe? Dog Day Afternoon over Wag the Dog, Adnan. Yeah, I did want Wag the... You're right. Wag the Dog, I do love. God, I, I love... You want me to produce your war? He's like, that's right. We're going to start a war with Albania. He goes, this is nothing. This is producing. They're like, Dustin Hoffman, the scenes where he's so upset about the fact producers never get an Academy Award. He's basically sending up Robert Evans, the great producer who did, did Chinatown and The Godfather. I love Wag the Dog. De Niro and uh, the chemistry with him and Dustin Hoffman, uh, co-written by David Mamet. I do love Wag the Dog. Barry Levinson, one of his best films. But no, I'll go honorable mention, Joe. Okay, all right. Uh, for my list then, I'm going to go with first 1986, The Fly. I wanted to get a horror movie on here. So Jeff Goldblum in The Fly, 1986. I think it's one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Um, the second one, I may be going out on a limb, but I'm going to go Enter the Dragon, mm. Bruce Lee. I think it is quintessential film, um, and I want to get a kind of different genres in here, so that's going to be my second choice. Number three is going to be One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Jack Nicholson, what can you say about th that film? It's just perfect. And then my last one, I'm, I'm torn between The Birds and uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm. I'm going to go with To Kill a Mockingbird, Gregory Peck. That's my final choice. Honorable mention to The Birds and also The Green Hornet, the Michelle Gondry movie with Seth Rogen. I always advocate for that film. It is fantastic. But my four are One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Fly, and Enter the Dragon. Excellent list. That's very eclectic. Much better than mine because like I said, you're hitting horror movies. You're hitting martial arts. You're hitting a classic with Cuckoo's Nest. Very good. Other options, of course, you know, Groundhog Day would be in the mix. Uh, listen, uh, Rabbit Proof Fence. Of Mice and Men, Dances with Wolves, Crocodile Dundee, Coyote Ugly, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, All Dogs Go to Heaven. And another honorable mention I got to get in here, A Fish Called Wanda, one of the funniest movies ever made. Don't. 
Don't call me stupid. Kevin Klein won an Academy Award. Very rare for comedy to be recognized. Won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, couldn't get Black Swan on there. Also a great film. Natalie Portman won an Academy Award. Thank you so much for checking out Cinephile. Four more movies in the books. I really appreciate all the support here moving forward. Please go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. As always, you can hit me up on Twitter, Adnan S. Ferk, or Cinephile Pod. Lots more reviews, lots more guests coming down as we count down the Oscars. And once again, I'll see you at the movies. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.